Thank you for downloading this podcast from the Pardes Institute of Jewish Studies. This episode of Pardes from Jerusalem features Rabbi Leon Morris on Parashat Toldot. Did you know that Pardes from Jerusalem is now featured on Spotify? Subscribe today to make sure you get the latest episode of the weekly parasha or visit elmod.pardes.org. I'm reminded of an adage I learned from my late father who owned and operated a clothing store started by my great-grandfather. More than the man makes the suit, the suit makes the man. A well-tailored suit can do a lot to enhance one's physical qualities. It can give you the appearance of having broad shoulders, a thinner waist, pinstripes can make you look taller. A suit, and just about any clothing we wear, is in some ways a kind of disguise. The story of this week's parasha, Toldot, is well known and is all about disguises. Isaac is old and blind. He tells his elder son, Esav, to go out into the field, trap an animal, and prepare a meal so that he can bless him. Rivka suggests to Yaakov, he bring some roasted meat that she'll prepare for him, and that he put on animal skins onto his arms so that his father will think it's Esav. Surprisingly soon, Isaac hears someone enter. Who are you, he asks. I am Esav, your elder son, the voice replies. Vayomer Yaakov el Aviv, Anochi Esav Bechorecha, Asiti Kasher Dibarta Eli. I am Esav, your elder son, the voice replies. But Isaac is not convinced. He says, Vayomer Yitzchak el Yaakov, Geshana, Vaamushcha Bni, Haata Zebni Esav Inlo. Come close and let me feel you, my son. Are you really Esav or not? He reaches out and feels the rough texture of the skins covering his arms. And still unsure, he asks again, But are you really my son Esav? And Yaakov replies, I am. Vayomer atazebni Esav, vayomer ani. And he asked, are you really my son? And he said, I am. Vayigash vayishachlo vayarach et reach begadav vayvarchehu. Vayomer re'e reach b'ni kareach sadeh asher beracho Hashem. And he went up and kissed him and he smelled his clothes and he blessed him saying, ah, the smell of my son is like the smell of the fields that the Lord has blessed. But it isn't Esau, as we know. It's Jacob in disguise. What's so fascinating about the story of Jacob's deception is that it's not the only such story in the Torah. There are at least three similar stories in Sefer Breshit in the book of Genesis. And I was introduced to this perspective from Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, Zichrono Livracha, who passed away on the Shabbat of November 7th. Rabbi Sachs was one of the most impactful public intellectuals in Jewish life and among the most inspiring contemporary religious leaders and writers of our time. He leaves an enormous legacy 
that will amplify the Torah and its most central values for generations. Rabbi Sachs borrowed from Robert Alter's concept of type scenes, the notion that understanding one story in light of other similar stories will yield important interpretive understandings. This scene about Jacob deceiving his father, Isaac, is the first of four type scenes that Rabbi Sachs lays out uh, that are contained in the book of Genesis. What are the other three? Well, the second is when Jacob flees to his uncle Laban's house. And he arrives and he meets and falls in love with Rachel. And he offers to work for her father, Laban, for seven years in order to marry Rachel. The time passes quickly. The years, we're told, uh, seem like a few days because he loved her so much. And then the wedding day comes and Lavan makes a feast and the bride enters her tent and late at night, Yaakov follows her, thinking that now he has finally married his beloved Rachel. And when the morning comes, he discovers that he has been the victim of a deception, that it's not Rachel who is in his bed, but it is Leah in disguise. Leah had, under the dark of night, disguised herself as her sister Rachel. The third scene involves Judah, Yehuda, who has three sons. The first son marries a local girl, Tamar, but dies mysteriously, and he leaves Tamar as a childless widow. So according to the laws of Yibum, of Leverite marriage, Judah gives his second son to Tamar so that she can have a child to keep the, the brother, the first husband's name, alive. He doesn't want to have a son that will, in effect, belong to his late brother. So the Torah tells us he spills his seed. And for this, he also dies young. So having had two sons die uh, in relationship to having married Tamar, Judah is reluctant to give Tamar to his third son. So she is left an aguna, a chained woman bound to someone else. She's prevented uh, from marrying someone else, uh, but also hasn't married uh, the third son. So the years pass and Judah's wife dies. And while returning home from sheep shearing, he sees a veiled prostitute by the side of the road. He asks her to sleep with him and promises her uh, a kid from the flock. She asks him for his sealed and cord and staff as a guarantee, as a security. So the next day he sends a friend to deliver the, the goat, the kid, but the woman has disappeared. And the locals deny that they know of her. Three months later, Judah hears that his daughter-in-law, Tamar, has become pregnant and he is furious. She is, after all, bound to his youngest son. And even though she hasn't married him, she's not allowed to have a relationship with anyone else. So he assumes she must be guilty of adultery. And he says, bring her out so that she may be burned. She is brought out to be killed and she asks one favor. 
she tells one of the people to bring to Judah the seal and the cord and the staff. And she says, the father of my child is the man to whom these things belong. And immediately Judah understands. Tamar, who was unable to marry yet honor bound to have a child to perpetuate the memory of her first husband, has tricked or deceived her father-in-law into performing the duty that he should have allowed his youngest son to do. Judah says, she is more righteous than I. He thought he had slept with a prostitute, but it was his daughter-in-law, Tamar, in disguise. The fourth story of disguise in the book of Genesis is the meeting between Joseph and his brothers. The man whom the brothers bow down to doesn't look like the brother that they knew. Uh, He doesn't look like a Hebrew shepherd. He speaks Egyptian. He's dressed in an Egyptian ruler's robes. He wears the special signet ring that Pharaoh gives to him and a gold chain that indicates his authority. And the brothers think they are in the presence of an Egyptian high up official, the second in command. But in fact, it is Joseph, their brother, in disguise, as it were. He recognizes them, but they don't recognize him. So through a disguise, these four biblical characters achieve the love and attention that they sought. Rabbi Sachs wrote that ironically, by disguising themselves, they are now seen the way that they have always wanted to be seen. Jacob experiences the full attention and love of his father. Leah experiences the love and attention that her sister knew well. Joseph experiences the respect that his brothers had denied him. And Tamar, likewise, gets to be seen as beautiful and desirable. But Rabbi Sachs pointed out that in the long term, what they achieved through disguises doesn't work. Jacob suffers greatly for having taken Esau's blessing. Leah, though she marries Jacob, never really wins his love. Tamar had twins, but Judah was not intimate with her anymore, and she remains unmarried and alone. And Joseph's brothers no longer hated him, but they didn't really love him. They feared him. That even after his assurances that he bore them no grudge, they still thought that he would take revenge on them after their father died. Rabbi Sachs wrote, what we achieve in disguise is never the love we sought. From these four type scenes, we might reach the conclusion that masks and disguises are in the long term an impediment to what we really want and what we really need. But I'm not sure that's the only takeaway from these four stories from Genesis. I'm not sure that the only takeaway is that we should strive to always remove our disguises. I I think it's more complicated than that. Disguises and masks and costumes can also at times be positive and important. I think of the enjoyment my children get from dressing up as Captain America or a ballerina or a construction worker or a lion. Part of their attraction to dressing up is to try on a different identity as they form their own identity. 
And I think this may extend beyond the experience of children. For us, disguises and masks can serve as a similar purpose. Who do I want to be in the world? There's a way in which a disguise can be aspirational. It can motivate us. When my son or one of my daughters dresses up as a superhero, they are identifying with someone who is strong and independent, someone who helps others and is brave. When we dress in white on Yom Kippur, we are disguising ourselves as angels. We're saying that we want that angelic part of who we are to predominate more in our daily lives. Who do I want to be? Well, let me begin to appear that way, and then maybe I will become more that way. And this brings me back to my father's adage of the suit making the man. Wearing that disguise can at times be helpful. Looking like a gentleman might help me to act like a gentleman. That's part of the impact, I think, of wearing a kippah and tzitzit in wearing them. I strive to be someone who merits wearing them. But sometimes we do need to shed our disguises in order to discover who we really are. At other times, we need to dress up in costumes to remind us of who we want to be. There is a very particular issue in the story of Jacob and Esau a very specific form of disguise and ornamentation that plays with notions of gender identity, specifically with what it means to be a man. How does a man act? What does a man look like? From the very beginning of the story, Jacob and Esau are presented as opposites. They are twin brothers with distinct personalities. Esau is the wild one and Jacob is the mild one. When the boys grew up, Esav became a skillful hunter, a man of the outdoors, but Jacob was a mild man who stayed in the camp. To be more specific, what the Torah presents in contrasting Jacob and Esau with particular resonance for our time are competing notions of masculinity. Who is the real man? While this seems like a very contemporary discussion of gender, we get a sense from this parasha that competing notions of masculinity run through human history. Isaac is drawn to the strong hunter that is Esau. Harry, ruddy, the smell of sweat. Esau is presented in Genesis as a kind of man's man. And perhaps Isaac's attraction to this is a projection of the kind of man he wanted to be. Perhaps this idealized image of physical strength and prowess is achieved through his son, and he delights in that. We might even deduce that Rebecca's love for Isaac is reflected in a different definition of masculinity, one that drew her not only to Isaac, but draws her also closer to her son Jacob as well. This is a more nurturing kind of masculinity, one that embodies greater sensitivity, mind over body, intellect over physical prowess. Jacob himself reflects on the differences between him and his brother 
when he says to his mother, Rebecca, Hein esav achi ish sa'ir va'anochi ish chalak. My brother Esau is a hairy man, and I am smooth-skinned. The classic Bible commentators go even further in sharpening the distinction between these brothers. According to Ibn Ezra, Esau's skills as a hunter underscored that his entire life revolved around deception, since most animals are trapped by means of tricking them. In contrast, Jacob was his antithesis, a man who sought to avoid even deceiving animals because he was a man of such great integrity. Yodeat Said, that he knew the hunt, Ibn Ezra says, Laolam male mirmot kirov hachayot baderach mirma yitpasu. The Yaakov hefech esav kihu ishtam. Esau was always full of deception, for most wild animals catch their prey using deception. But Jacob was the opposite of Esau because he was a plain man. Now we see how uh, much more complicated these characters, and particularly the character of Jacob, is. Jacob becomes, of course, the deceiver, and we'll come back to that in a moment. The recent U.S. elections played out these kind of competing stereotypes of masculinity. As Susan Faludi laid out in a brilliant essay in the New York Times, Trump and Biden evoke different brands of manliness. In her essay, she quotes a recent Washington Post article uh, and a gender equity educator named Jackson Katz, who argued that Trump channeled old-fashioned machismo, aggressive, play, uh, physically tough, physically strong, never backing down, while Biden evoked what Katz calls a more complex 21st century version of masculinity, defined by compassion and empathy and care and a personal narrative of loss. Faludi's own critique of these stereotypes is that already a century ago, masculinity in America was redefined in ways that borrow from both, a strength of competence, usefulness, and collective service, tending to the needs of others, providing protective support, and spurning the spotlight. I subscribed recently to a daily text message each morning to remind folks to put on tefillin. Now, I love the mitzvah of tefillin, and since taking it on in my early 20s, I've never missed a single day in which one is obligated. But I was curious about the text messages that would be sent out, so I subscribed. I wanted to track the creativity of the reminders sent as a daily SMS. And one of them struck me particularly uh, with regard to the topic that we're discussing. I got a message at 6 a.m. that said, Taniach tefillin kamo gever shebegavarim. Put on tefillin like a man's man. Here, in this text message, Masculinity is redefined as fulfilling a sense of religious obligation, acting on a sense of duty, binding oneself more closely with God and with spiritual commitments. The Talmudic scholar Daniel Boyarin has written about the ways in which the rabbis of the Talmud transformed ideas of masculinity to be a model of the scholar 
in the Beit Midrash. Here too, in our parasha, the Torah presents these stereotypes of masculinity in ways that enrich and complexify. Paralleling our own deepening understanding of identity, the biblical narrative of these two brothers' lives grow more complex. The strict dichotomy between the purely spiritual Jacob and the basely physical Esau is undermined as the story continues. As Jacob grows older, his life begins to present a striking contrast to the way he's described at the beginning of the story. And the clearest example, which I alluded to a moment ago, is the change in Jacob in which he becomes the man of deception. To steal the blessing intended for Esau, Jacob tricks his father first by the suggestion with venison in his hands and Esau's clothing on his back, and then by explicitly saying to his father, I am Esau, your firstborn. Anochi esav b'chorecha, asiti kasher dibarta elai. Now, the commentators uh, struggle to defend this outright lie and deception of Yaakov. In a way, they want to, some of them, want to keep Yaakov in this very clear box of honesty and integrity. Um, Rashi, for example, comments on Anochi Esav Bechorecha, I am Esau, your firstborn. Anochi Hamevilecha, the Esav Hu Bechorecha. He kind of puts a period in the middle of that phrase and says, I, I'm the one who's bringing this to you. And Esau is your firstborn. Now this uh, will feel like uh, a bit of a stretch to the straightforward, the pshat uh, understanding of the story. Um, we have other attempts. The Or HaChayim understands uh, this to be a statement of truth by virtue of Yaakov having purchased Esau's birthright. Uh, he comments, Liot shekanah bechorah me'esav. Hinei hu na'ase esav litzad bechinata bechorah. Ki lo yikara esav bechoro. That because he purchased the birthright, he now has the legal right to say, I am esav. Perush lihiyot shekanah bechorah me'esav hinehu na'ase esav letzad bechinata bechorah ki lo yikara esav bechorah. Jacob meant that seeing that he had purchased the birthright from esav, he was now the legal esav. This hints at something that is made more explicit in another commentary, a midrash we will look at. Jacob does more than impersonate Esav. He identifies with him. He becomes like Esav 
for a period of time. And in becoming like Asaph, he's able to grow and more deeply develop his own identity. For Jacob to become Yisrael, he needs to try on Asaph's identity along the way. Jacob learns that in order to shape his own identity, he needs to break free of the sharp contrast between how he sees himself and how he sees the other. And it also gets the reader to leave the sharp contrast between Jacob and Esau. A late Midrashic collection called Pirkei de Rabbi Eliezer speaks to this transformation in Jacob's character. When Jacob went forth from the presence of his father, Isaac, he went forth crowned like a bridegroom and like a bride in her adornment. And the quickening dew from heaven descended upon him and refreshed his bones. And he also became a mighty hero. So note in this Midrash that in leaving this scene of deception or this scene of trying on aspects of Esau's identity as part of the formation of Yaakov's identity. He's described by this Midrash as leaving like both a bridegroom and like a bride who is dressed up in, in her adornment. We have the, the, the masculine and the feminine merging here. And in case we miss the point about the takeaway of Yaakov for this disguise of dressing up like Esau, we're told that he also became a mighty hero, uh, a gibor chayel v'koach. So I discovered this text from Pirkei de Rabbi Eliezer from Aviva Zorenberg's uh, incredible commentary on the book of Genesis, the beginning of desire. And she writes there about this text, the description suggests a radiant awareness of new possibilities that springs from deep within the self. What Jacob has gained in his impersonation of Esau is a sense of power in his limbs. I love this. Jacob becomes an amalgam of the old Jacob, the one who dwells in tents, the smooth Jacob, and his nemesis, his twin brother. And we get a hint of this in the Torah text itself uh, in the acting out of this deception. When Jacob draws close to his father, Isaac acknowledges this combination in this new Jacob, a combination of Jacob and Esau. Vayomer hakol kol Yaakov, vahayadayim yedei Esav. The voice is the voice of Jacob, but the hands are the hands of Esau. 
this new Jacob is part Jacob, part old Jacob, and part Esau. Jacob started off as a plain, smooth tent dweller. Only when he is able to expand his own self-understanding can he acquire the strength to become Israel, one who wrestles with God. He tried on aspects of Esau's identity and was ultimately able to integrate some of them into himself. And what results is a richer, more complex identity that gives Yaakov the strength to take his place among the patriarchs of our people. In the end, Yaakov emerges as someone who transcends simplistic and oppositional notions of masculinity. His story rejects a narrow notion of gender identity. And in the end, he becomes so much more complex than a simple man who dwells in tents. In trying on and then ultimately taking on traits of Esau's, he forges a new understanding of the man he is. I'm reminded here of that famous Judy Chicago merger poem, and then both men and women will be gentle, and then both women and men will be strong. I'm struck by the way in which the Torah moves from the opening description of Yaakov and Esav to the denouement of Jacob's story, and the way in which this is a powerful model for emerging understandings of gender that provide opportunities to redefine what it might mean to be a man or a woman. And broader than issues of gender, this week's parasha toldot helps us in our individual lives acquire the wisdom of knowing when it's time to put on a costume and when we need to take the costume off. Thank you again for downloading this podcast a production of the Pardes Institute of Jewish Studies. If you liked what you just heard, please give us a five-star review wherever you download your podcast today. Be sure to visit us on Spotify, where you can subscribe to any of our other podcast channels, or visit us at elmod.pardes.org. Thanks for listening.